Hi, and welcome to a shiny new podcast called Magical Match, a place to hear about real people with real stories around the important topic of stem cell donation and transplants. In each episode, I'll be chatting with donors, recipients, those in supportive roles, and people who have been affected by either a personal experience or through another's inspirational story. It is my hope that by opening the conversation around stem cell donation, we can inspire more people to sign up to the stem cell register, offering more hope to those in need. In this episode, I spoke with Kelly Statham-Gill, clinical nurse specialist at Leicester Royal Infirmary, Rachel Miller, lead nurse at the Anthony Nolan offices, and Dr Jenna Love, clinical psychologist at St George's Hospital London. We discussed what happens when people get blood cancer, the process of a stem cell transplant, the importance of psychologists in the process for patients, their families and the staff, and we also talked about fertility and the importance of signing up to become a stem cell donor. This episode, I'm pleased to say, is packed full of information and I really hope you enjoy it. So welcome, ladies. Hello. Hi. Hello. So first question to to Rachel, what is your role within Anthony Nolan and how do you support the clinical nurse specialists? Hi, yeah. So I um, am the lead nurse, Anthony Nolan, and part of my role is to run the funded programme that Anthony Nolan has. And that's been in um, place for about eight, nine years, and it allows us to place um, healthcare professionals into transplant centres particularly in Kelly's case for post-transplant care of the patient once they've had their stem cell transplant and then clinical psychologists like Jenna who um, look after the patient throughout the transplant pathway. That sounds quite a complex role. How did you how did you come to Anthony Nolan in the first place? Um, so I've been with the charity for approximately a year now. Prior to that I worked in haematology and stem cell transplant myself, um, starting out as a student nurse, loving haematology, got the bug. It's a bit like Marmite, you love it or you hate it and once you love it you're stuck with it. And so I've worked predominantly in that area for about 18 years, from staff nurse looking after patients on the ward through to um, matron in a regional cancer centre before coming into this role. Okay, wonderful. And I'm going to move across to Kelly now. Kelly, you're based over in Leicester Royal Infirmary. Can you talk us through the key areas of work that that you cover in the hospital? So my role as a clinical nurse specialist here at Leicester involves me looking after um, transplant patients. I see them right from the beginning of their transplant and introduce them to transplant. And then I take them through the whole process, literally right through to the survivors clinic, my late effects clinic, a clinic that I've set up as part of my funded post. Well, that sounds wonderful. It sounds like such a, a rewarding role to have because when people are coming through into the hospital and obviously they've just had their diagnosis, as a family who've gone through this scenario ourselves, you are given so much information that it's quite nice when you see a friendly face. So how does it feel for you to form those sorts of relationships? Oh, that's the most rewarding part of my job. It's such a pleasure to be working within this environment. You build such lovely bonds with patients and their families. And and I say that's why I love my job. I try and I try and help them and support them through the whole process and it's such a hard time for everybody involved, the patients and their families. And I think it's a very important part of my role to support both of them through that, definitely. And can you talk us through what happens to the bone marrow when people get blood cancer? 
Oh, okay. So when people get blood cancer, it means that their bone marrow has gone wrong somewhere. So the spongy part inside the bone is the bone marrow. And that's where white cells, blood products, so blood and platelets are made. For instance, in in the example of leukemia, it'll be when the white cells have gone wrong. So they start malfunctioning and with leukemia, they, they make too many, to too many cells, turns into leukemic cells. And then it crowds out this spongy material in the bone marrow and then stops the other cells being made so you can no longer make blood and platelets. So haemoglobin and platelets don't then get made. So that's what happens. And then it turns cancerous and then you're in this situation where you need help. You need a new bone marrow, Yeah. Yes. And what are some of the questions, I suppose, that patients and families ask you when they're first in contact with you? Um, For a start, so when I first meet them, they've already had their treatment to get them into remission, ready for their transplant. So they've had a lot of high-dose chemotherapy beforehand. So that side of it, they've already experienced that part. The questions are, what is a bone marrow transplant? Because a lot of people come to me not even knowing what a bone marrow transplant is, thinking that we transplant bones a lot of the time and not realising it's the stem cells. So it's a, lot of, a lot of it is peeling all that away and getting down to actually um, basics of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is how long do I stay in? Will I lose my hair? How am I going to manage not working for such a long time? All these big worries like that. So, yeah, that's... And yet you're able to provide, presumably, you know, a bit of direction for them as to where they go for help, presumably. And obviously that's Absolutely. that will be another podcast, I expect, with patient services yeah. and things. Could you, maybe Rachel and you can both talk us through the, the actual process of what happens when a person comes into contact with yourselves for a stem cell transplant? What is the process they're going through? And what I want to come to is the suppression of the immune system and why it's important. The process starts with Anthony Nolan finding a donor. So that's where we start. So I'll let Rachel talk about that side of that. So there's a number of different types of bone marrow transplant. There's autologous, which means that you receive your own stem cells back after some very high dose chemotherapy. And then there's allograft, which is predominantly what we're talking about today. And that's where you receive stem cells from someone else. And that might be a sibling or a member of your family. It might be a completely unrelated donor that you've found through a a donor registry. And there is also umbilical cord blood that um, is taken from um, newborn babies' umbilical cords. Are there particular cancers that you tend to lean towards any particular treatment? And is there a reason for that? Um, So 90% of donations in the UK are peripheral blood stem cells from donors. There is a small percentage that are still done as bone marrow, and that's often in relation to the patient's disease. Um, So, for example, aplastic anemia sometimes responds better to a bone marrow transplant as opposed to a peripheral blood stem cell transplant. And it can also be to do with the donor. So very small children, for example, may not cope being on a um, apheresis machine for five, six hours giving peripheral blood and therefore putting them through um, a bone marrow um, harvest is better and easier for them. And presumably if they were very young, that's that's when it comes into sort of sibling yeah, uh, donors absolutely. with the family. So there are different types of transplant that can be um, given to a patient. If a patient has had a 
match through Anthony Nolan, it will be an unrelated donor, so a stranger who has joined the registry and they have found them to be a match through the, the donor registry. But whatever the, um, the donation type, largely the care that the patient receives is pretty similar in as much as they come into hospital, they have a very strong mixture of chemotherapy drugs and sometimes some radiotherapy to hugely suppress their own immune system. And that is usually called day minus. So that might be day minus 10, day minus seven, etc. Then on day zero, the magical new stem cells are infused into them, very similarly to a blood transfusion. Um, Kelly's already mentioned some patients think they're having a transplant, an operation, they have to go to theatre. And actually it's it's quite, a, some people say, a bit of an anticlimax on the day because it's a, a bag of red stuff that's infused in probably over an hour or two top. And then we have a period of waiting for 10 days, two weeks, while we those stem cells magically find their way back to the spongy bone marrow that Kelly's talked about. And then they start doing their job and growing into proper cells. And so we sit and wait and watch for those cells to start proliferating and coming into the, the bloodstream. And we are monitoring blood counts daily. And then it's a matter of getting the patient to a reasonable level of bloods um, or blood counts within their system to allow them to go home. And so that's when the real recovery really starts um, yes. in that period. And that's when Kelly would take over in, in supporting them in that recovery period. And so when you're suppressing the immune system, you're suppressing the immune system for the purposes of getting the body ready to take those new stem cells. A new immune system, yeah. Yeah, it is new, isn't it? It's a brand new, Absolutely. as if you're a baby. Yeah, and that's a really important stage because if there is, well, there's something also called a graft versus leukaemia effect. So if there is any of your old, the patient's old cells still floating around, the hope and idea is that the new immune system recognises those as um, foreign and will try and munch them up and stop those leukaemic cells from continuing to grow as well. But when you transplant a new immune system into a patient, there's a big risk of something called graft-versus-host disease. And that's where the new immune system has been transplanted into this patient, but it's recognising that this isn't where it's come from and it, it recognises the, um, the patient as something to attack sometimes. So in solid organ, you may hear of a body rejecting a kidney in a bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant. It's the other way around. It's the immune system rejecting the body. And that can bring up all sorts of complexities, can't it? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I think people who are listening that are unaware of this process might not understand that in cancer and particularly in blood cancer, things can change on the spin of a coin from minute to minute. And how do you, as a clinical nurse specialist, Kelly, how do you cope with those experiences for other families? How can you keep yourself professional and supportive without becoming too involved when, when these changes are happening? It can be really tricky. We're human at the end of the day. And if we didn't have a heart, we couldn't do the job that we do. So it's important to show that human side, not just a nurse, but obviously there is people as well. It comes with a lot of, it comes with the training and the experience that lets you deal with these situations. I've been doing, working within bone marrow transplant for 
22 years now, so a long time. And so you build that knowledge and you, you know how to react in circumstances. And with cancer, with transplant patients, you don't have the luxury of time either. You don't have time to sit and think about it and dilly-dally. Sepsis is a real issue and a real problem and one of the big dangers with transplants. So you have to be getting antibiotics into them very rapidly with hours. So yeah, it's just it's keeping that professionalism and keeping that knowledge there to be able to do the job effectively yeah within Anthony Nolan is there a you know support for the staff as well obviously for mental health well-being as much as patients I suppose very much encourage staff to undertake clinical supervision particularly our um, specialist nurses etc and yeah, draw on peer support really to make sure that you're staying resilient and professional, etc. But some of our clinical psychology roles also very much have that within their job plan of um, supporting staff, helping with debriefing, etc. When things do go wrong, because that's their, I guess, clinical skill set to a degree. And I'm sure mm. Jenna would be able to talk a bit more about how she does that yes. in her area. So. Dr. Jenna Love, you are a clinical psychologist and what are your main responsibilities, you know, the key areas of work that you cover within the hospital, St. George's, where you're based? So my main responsibilities are working as a embedded psychologist within the stem cell transplant team at St. George's, which means that I can, as well as working with patients all the way through the pathway from before they come in for their transplant, during their transplant and after their transplant. And we don't have any time limit on when we can stop seeing people. So we can have people that might be referred five, six, seven, eight years post-transplant, which feels really important. But I also work within, as, as Rachel was saying, the other part of my role is about supporting the staff and thinking about helping them to use psychological ideas to cope with the emotional impact of the work that we do. And actually, because I'm based within a broader cancer psychological support team, that means that we've got a little bit of flexibility. So we offer clinical supervision for all the CNSs in the trust, all the clinical nurse specialists in the trust. So what that means is that the the two lovely CNSs who I work with directly have their supervision with the different psychologists in the trust and I supervise other CNSs so it means that they have that opportunity to talk about things with a little bit of distance as well and with with um, psychologists other than me who works directly in their team. I feel that is something that is just as important as working with the families and the patients. How important is it for families that you see in these situations to see a clinical psychologist? Obviously, I think it's hugely important, but I think it's hugely <laughs> important. I think it's hugely important to have that available. So I work with adults, and we also have the ability to work with families, carers, loved ones. And I don't think that necessarily, absolutely, everybody would all need psychological support or an in-depth level of psychological support. But I think it's about having that available and a real normalisation of saying this is not just physically hard. This is psychological hard. It's not saving psychology for the people who are perhaps 
you know, sort of the, the small number of people who are really struggling. It's saying that actually, I think the majority of people would benefit from that space to talk about what's going on. I think when you're in that situation, everybody else you talk to in your family and friends, even though social support is hugely important, everybody you talk to loves you and cares about you. And so you're protecting them. You don't want to talk about the fear that you might not make it through this transplant and worry the other person, the other people in your life more. So to have that support that is completely neutral and as hugely important as the doctors, the nurses, the physios, the dietitians are, I think I'm the one that probably has those different types of conversations more with people and, and we have the space. I don't need to ask about blood counts and platelet levels. Actually, we can really go into depth about, but how are you and how are you coping and what's going on for you today? I think that's wonderful because we're all talking about time here and how time is always of the essence. And, you know, to have somebody to reach out to when you are just having a moment, even just, you know, when you're heading to the kitchen to get a cup of tea or whatever, to have somebody to say, right, I've got 10 minutes. It is so, so important because it just gives you that breather to be able to go back in to the situation that you find yourself in. Why is it important to look after the patient's emotional and mental health during and after transplant? I think it's a really important question. And I think that the first and the obvious one is that, as anybody knows, living with fear, worry, distress, anger, guilt is is incredibly difficult and is incredibly unpleasant at times. Um, when people have already got so much going on physically, to have that additional distress on top of that just can add so much, so much more difficulty. And it's not that we can, it's not that we can get rid of that. Of course we can't. You know, I think a lot of what we're doing is is normalizing the fact that this is difficult, it is stressful, but it's being able to give people uh, different ways of coping with that. And it's it's very easy to see the importance of that on somebody's physical outcome as well. You know, if somebody is struggling greatly with stress, they're not able to sleep, they're struggling to take information in, actually engaging, there's so much information to take on, you know, before a transplant. There's so much that you need to do that it can really interfere with that process. It can interfere with somebody, you know, sort of their recovery. There's some, you know, there's some evidence suggesting that actually things like your mood and depression can have an impact on things like engraftment. And there's a real, I think there's a real careful balance there because I never want people to feel like they can't express their emotions. I've just got to be positive all of the time. But supporting people psychologically, I think, can have a huge impact on their psychological well-being and how they cope with the transplant and for months and years after that as well. It's like having an added support network or a, somebody to hold you while you're going through this whole process because you don't always want to speak to somebody in your family either because you're all too close to it. And, and like you say, if you're speaking to somebody that's outside of the situation who can just listen, it's kind of crucial. And what's the best bit about your job? What do you really love about it? You're, you're obviously very passionate about it. I think I love a little bit like Kelly was saying, I love the connections and the conversations that I get to have with people. And 
I think being able to sit and have a conversation with somebody that allows them and you together to understand perhaps what might be the thing that they're worried about the most or why something is proving so difficult. And they get to that, you know, we sort of unravel things a little bit and they might say, actually, I hadn't really thought about it. I hadn't realized that the reason why this is so stressful is because I'm telling myself this or I'm putting all of this pressure on myself. And it can make a real difference. It can make a real difference to people's journey through transplant. And I I do think it is a hugely challenging thing that we ask people to undergo. And so I feel like we should have all of the different resources and support to try and get them through that as manageably as possible. Hmm. It's a privilege. That's lovely you say that. Would anybody like to lay the fears around contact with somebody who has got cancer, i.e. confirm that it's not something that is contagious? I think a lot of people treat people with cancer very differently. Just an observation. Um, And it would be nice to hear from the specialists that there's nothing to worry about. Oh, there really isn't anything to worry about. Cancer is not contagious. You cannot catch it with close contact with somebody. You can't. Don't be afraid to give your loved ones a hug and be with them. They need it. They need the support. And yeah, they'll want you there to support them through it. And if you try, if you isolate them, they'll become afraid and they could get isolated and have all sorts of issues going on. So no, do. It's so important. Yeah. Give them a hug. (laughs) Hugs always work. Yeah. Why is it important to be careful around somebody who is going through uh, cancer treatment? Particularly in blood cancers, we've mentioned already that, for example, leukaemia is where the white cells aren't working effectively. And so what would be your normal immune system is not working to its optimum anyway. We then treat leukaemia and many other cancers with chemotherapy which further lowers that immune system. And so you're rendering patients almost without any immune system, particularly when you're going into bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant, because the aim is to completely obliterate the patient's immune system. And so for the period while they're waiting for their new stem cells to grow, they are incredibly vulnerable to um, infection because they have no internal um, fighting mechanism to stave off any of the infections that you or I and normal healthy adults would be able to do. Which is why I guess when you're in treatment, you are isolated, aren't you? There's a particular system with the air that I seem to remember. Yeah, HEPA filtration. The laminar airflow, yeah. Can you explain what that's all about? And it's very cold as well. So if anybody's going in there, wrap Mm -hmm. up warm. So um, if you were to imagine, I guess it's not air conditioning, but there's two types of filtration system. There is a filtration system that kind of sucks air into a room. And then the one we're talking about is where air is blown out of the room. And that's effectively a way of barrier nursing the patient so that no bacteria, bugs that are outside in the corridor in the hospital are being brought into the room. And that can be incredibly difficult for a patient who's in isolation because we largely say doors, windows need to be kept shut. Um, And you can imagine, I mean, we're all sat here talking today on a 27 degree sunny day and that's weeks and weeks of um, being in isolation like that. So that's, that's tough going. 
It is. It is very tough going. Something that not even on the Magical Match podcast yet, we haven't talked about the aspects of fertility when it comes to cancer. And I wonder if there's anybody that would like to talk about it. Um, so Rachel had explained that you go through a series of high dose chemotherapy and total body irradiation as part of the treatment before you have your transplant. It's called conditioning treatment. That high dose chemotherapy that you have and the total body irradiation does leave you infertile and it can do. Never say never. Stranger things have happened and I've had happy accidents after transplant, which is lovely. But as a general rule, it it does mean that you're infertile. There are things you can do before you go into this sort of treatment. It's usually a lot earlier on than before transplant, before they start any sort of chemotherapy. So there is things that you can have. You could do sperm banking and also uh, freezing eggs and embryos before you actually have all this treatment. So there is possibility in the future once you're better to have babies that just gives people hope doesn't it on that side of things i think it's important that people do still have hope and and stay positive around that and jenna do you find that this is a topic of conversation when people are going through transplant yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm certainly working with quite a few people who are perhaps three, four, five, six years post-transplant for whom fertility is now a huge issue. I think the decision making is really complex because I think at the time when we're talking to people about whether to have a stem cell transplant or not, you know, for the majority of people who are having it for a blood cancer, actually they're being told that they need this transplant in or it's their best shot at staying alive. And so I think we sort of naturally downplay a lot of the what we're told about the risk of chronic GVHD, about fertility problems, but actually some of the people I'm working with are the people who are further on who actually are really struggling with those things. And it's like a double whammy, another effect of kind of going, well, I've already been through this, you know, really challenging time. And then now I'm struggling with fertility challenges. And, you know, for some people saying actually those those challenges are, are harder than the original cancer treatment. So it's something it's something that's coming up in people who are post-transplant. And I, I think for the people who are at the stage of decision making, it can all feel like it's very quick. And there's quite a lot of pressure to be, you know, to be making those decisions. You might not have ever, you might be in your early 20s and not have thought about having children. And suddenly you need to make those decisions in a very kind of tight time frame. Mm. Could you explain what being a nine or 10 match actually means? So when you are looking for a stem cell match, we look at something called the HLA on a patient, and that's a human leukocyte antigen. And that's slightly different to um, DNA, for example. This is very much about the patient's immunological tissue typing. So the little bit of them that defines their immune system. And we each get... Five, we've now moved to a six or 12 out of 12 match often now. So we get six of these HLA from each of our parents. So me as an individual, I have 12, six from my mum, six from my dad. And you can have a very similar, almost identical HLA match to someone else in another part of the world. And it's that that is matched to um, say whether or not you can be a stem cell donor for someone. Unfortunately, siblings only have a 25% chance of being a direct HLA match to their brother or sister. As you can imagine, there's a number of combinations that you can get from your parents. And so the chances of you having the exact same HLA match as a sibling 
as I said, is 25%. Basically need the, the closest to 10 out of 10. I've mentioned already, but graft-versus-host disease is a, a serious complication after transplant. And so you want the closest immunological matching you can get so that your new donor cells don't attack the the patient's system. Um, and so huge moves forward have been made in the last few decades to try and reduce the amount of graft-versus-host disease that occurs after transplant. But we do know that by having the closest match you can really does improve the chances of you um, not having serious graft-versus-host disease after transplant. And something happens, something quite amazing happens when you when you have a stem cell transplant. So you're changing your DNA, is that right? Or you're changing your blood type? Can somebody explain that to me? It's slightly contentious because you're not changing your DNA. Your DNA sits in every cell in your body. You are, however, changing the your blood type and you will in your blood have a circulating DNA that is different to the DNA that might be in your skin or your toenails or your hair. So you have two DNAs? Effectively, yeah. So you might, for example, brush your hair and have your original DNA, but if you were to have blood taken, you would see either a mixed DNA or a full donor DNA. It's something proper crime scene investigation kind of. Yes, it is. It is, and I do. I, I do write, so I'm I'm sitting here going, "Oh, that's one thing that I struggled with getting my head round." And when we have a transplant, we're looking for something called 100% chimerism, and that means that you have taken total chimerism, total cells from your donor. But it's not unusual for the patient um, and donors blood to be slightly mixed have a mixed chimerism so you might have 90% donor 10% patient still even months if not years after transplant. So when you're having your blood taken after that does that mean that you will have say A positive plus a little bit of B positive in there? Yeah you'd normally go with your most um, the majority chimerism so you would be your your donor's blood type for example. Oh my goodness. And we look for that very closely on very regular basis. Obviously we don't want to get that one wrong when they're on the bit when they're changing over. So yeah, we we do have to watch that very closely. Goodness me. The other thing that I wanted to just check about with regard to the transplant itself, when it comes to the transplant, I know that sometimes the patient can have GCSF for various things, but also the donor will have GCSF before donating. Can you explain what that sort of growth factor is and what what it does and why it's used? Yeah, so GCSF is short for granulocyte colony stimulating factor. And that is a drug that's given by subcutaneous injections, so similar to like an insulin injection for a, a diabetic or something. And that sends a message into the bone marrow to say stem cells, white cells grow. And it stimulates that growth in the bone marrow to the point where they spill out into the peripheral blood system. So GCSF is usually injected for approximately four days before donation. And then on that last day when the donor goes to donate, they should have lots and lots of freshly made juicy stem cells flying around their, their veins and they can be plugged into an apheresis machine and they're all taken off from the donor to give to the patient. Can we ask, what is the difference between cryopreserved stem cells and those that are delivered on the morning? And when and why are those types used? The most commonly utilised cryopreservation has been in a transplant called autologous transplant. And that is usually when a patient has chemotherapy to put them in remission. 
then they have their own stem cells taken off. They're given a period of time for recovery after that and then they're given a really big dose of chemotherapy and then their cells are reinfused into them. And because of the time frame there of a few weeks between the patient harvesting the stem cells and then having the high dose conditioning treatment, their stem cells are cryopreserved. And on the day of their transplant, they're taken out of a lovely dry ice container, warmed up and then given back to the patient. On the whole, allografts, so um, either sibling or matched unrelated donor stem cells, um, have traditionally been given fresh. So they would be taken off the donor, either in the UK or another part of the world, potentially Australia, checked through the lab to make sure everything was fine, popped in a special box and then amazing volunteer couriers travel them around the, the world to the transport centre they need to go to and then they would be given fresh. In some scenarios, if there is perhaps a problem with the patient on the morning of or in the run-up to transplant and they get an infection or something else, but the, the donor's set up to give cells, they may decide to continue with the donation but then cryopreserve until they've got the patient in a better situation. Over the past couple of years, cryopreservation has been used much more widespread because of COVID and the complications that COVID has brought with physically getting stem cells around the world, but also the risk of COVID in either the donor or the patient. So by cryopreserving them in advance of the transplant, knowing that the donor is as healthy as they can be and the patient's as healthy as they can be, then it's been a more utilised method than it has ever been in the last couple of years. Umbilical cord stem cells are frozen at, you know, at the point of withdrawal from the umbilical cord. All I would like to say to each of you, I suppose, in turn, is as people who are working on the front line, essentially, with people who are going through quite serious diagnoses and, you know, you're all obviously working towards improving the lives of many. What would you say or what would you like to say to the people who are listening about signing up to the Stem Cell Register? Do it. <laughs> yes, please, do it. Sorry. Do it. <laughs> I didn't hear that. Can you say it a bit louder, please? <laughs> do it, do it. <laughs> I think from everything I've... See, I'm very much on the other side and I meet the people who are the recipient of the donations. I don't meet the donors, but I've, you know, I've listened to your podcast, I've listened to other podcasts and, and everybody I hear talk about it talks about what a positive experience it is. And not just on a, you know, that was a nice thing to do for a couple of days actually for a lot of people it can feel really meaningful and even for mm. some people really life-changing and I think that's the really unique opportunity so I think if you're able to do it it's something that you feel like you can I, I think just absolutely do it you never know if you'll be called but as everybody says you won't be called unless you're on the register yeah. and it's so I mean, easy as well so easy to donate yeah. and what we see is the impact of those donations you know Day after day, we see how people have another opportunity at living. Sometimes, you know, it's not always easy to get to that living well again, but we have amazing people that help them along the way. You know, Kelly and Jenna, just two of them. So, yeah, it gives people a chance of life again. And that's really, really important. I think that's perfect. What an amazing way to end this podcast. <laughs> In the meantime, I'd just like to say thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. I really hope that people listening will feel inspired um, by everything that you've given here. And, and I really hope we see more people signing up to the Stem Cell Register. And thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. It's a pleasure. And that brings this episode of Magical Match to a close. 
I'm very grateful to my guests, Kelly Statham Gill, Rachel Miller and Dr. Jenna Love for sharing their experience and their knowledge around the topic of stem cell donation. I hope you found the conversation both interesting and inspiring. And as a sparkly new podcast, we are looking for guests to share their inspirational stories. And if you have one, we'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter at Magical Match Pod and get in touch there if you'd like to join me to share your stem cell story. If you've enjoyed listening to today's podcast, do like and subscribe. And if you have time, write us a review. We'll be back with a new episode really soon. And in the meantime, please consider signing up to the Stem Cell Register because you could be someone's magical match. Thank you for listening. Magical Match Podcast is an OB Hive production, originally inspired by a conversation with Andy Mitchell and other like-minded individuals. Magical Match Podcast is hosted and produced by Ginny Walker with audio production by James Walker and music by Cobalt Ocean.